Good morning, Trinity Park. Morning, my name is Sam Kennedy. I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at UNC Wilmington. Uh, some of you may be familiar with what we do with RUF. We are the campus ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America. I heard that y'all support my friend Chris Cooper at North Carolina Central. He's an incredible pastor and he's doing incredible work there. So thank you for supporting them and just for your heart for mission. It's incredible to hear all the things that you all are doing and the ways you're involved with uh, proclaiming the word of God and expanding the kingdom and being faithful uh, all over the world. Uh, if, if you're at all curious about what we do at UNC Wilmington, if you know someone who's maybe considering attending college at UNC Wilmington or have friends or neighbors that are going there, or you just want to know how you can pray for my wife and I and our family, we're going to have these uh, cards that are out at the welcome table. You're welcome to take one. It's got a link to sign up for our newsletter if you'd like, some prayer points on the back. But um, one of the things that I do throughout the summer is go around to different churches that partner with us or pray with us or that are uh, churches in our denomination to thank people who support us. Several of y'all uh, in this congregation right now uh, support us faithfully and pray for us. So thank you. And also just to see if anyone would be willing to join with us in what we're doing because we could always use uh, more hands and more prayers. So thank you. Um, I've been working at UNCW for just about the last five years as a campus minister for RUF, uh, but before then I worked with a, a youth ministry called Young Life in Wilmington and uh, met my wife in Young Life. We have uh, two little kids, Gus, who's 11, and Hattie, who's eight, and one of my kids' favorite things to do is once a month they come with us to RUF Large Group, which is... Um, kind of an outsider, friendly, um, easy to understand worship service that we do in one of the lecture halls in Cameron Hall at UNCW where the business school is. And uh, at some point during the liturgy, we usually have a corporate confession. And one of the reasons we do corporate confession with students at UNCW, especially ones uh, who are unfamiliar with church liturgy, unfamiliar with historic Christian worship, is because there's something about confessing out loud. There's something about acknowledging in the presence of other people that you have done things or said things or thought things that you know you shouldn't have or even if you're not sure about it, you're, you're not entirely proud of, about confessing that and admitting that in front of other people, it, it, it's incredibly freeing. And it's really countercultural because the default mode uh, for all of us is to walk around acting like we are absolutely crushing it. <laughs> Like we're, we're doing everything we're right, we're, we're projecting this image of, of you know, put-togetherness and moral excellence and beauty and prosperity and all these things. Whereas on the insides, if, we're, if we take some time to be honest with ourselves, you know, we know that there's a, a trillion different ways that we fall short every single day. And what we tend to do is compare our insides with other people's outsides, with these false projections of excellence that we see around us. 
And so what corporate confession does is it helps reorient us to the truth that we are all desperately needy and actually none of us has anything to boast about in the presence of each other. So we do it every single week, and one of the passages we often use for our corporate confession is 1 John, that beginning part that was just read. And it, you know, it talks about the reality that all of us sin, that all of us are radically needy. And so we would talk about that every single week, but I would never get to preach about it. <laughs> and so this summer, uh, it's been my great privilege to get to preach on my favorite sentence from one of my favorite passages in 1 John. So um, would you pray with me real quick? Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for uh, John, for this crystal clear picture that he gives of your holy character and of your attitude towards us and, and the life that you are calling us to in fellowship with one another and in fellowship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, right now, would you open our eyes to see you, to behold beautiful things in your word. Lord, would you enable me to speak and teach clearly? Would you apply these things to our heart, and would you open our hands and give us the ability to live differently because of what we heard today? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so John is writing this letter to young believers who are getting all kinds of different conflicting pictures about what the Christian life looks like, and all kinds of different conflicting messages about what the character of God actually is. And so John is, is writing to help them sort through uh, truth and error, both on their insides and also on the outsides, in the communities they're a part of, in the conversations they're, they're a part of, and the associations that they have. And that's a, a really uh, similar thing that we try to do in RUF with students who come in. Now, I was reading this book this summer uh, called How to Think by a man named Alan Jacobs. It's a tremendous book. It's a short book, which is one of the best things I could say about it. And one of the things he says in this book is that there's actually no such thing as an independent thinker. That nobody just, um, you know, from out of nowhere thinks a brand new thought, that actually each of us is a deeply interdependent thinker. That our thinking, the thoughts and the narratives that go through our head are largely dependent upon the communities that we're a part of and the conversations that we're a part of. So the people you hang out with, the conversations you have, the messages that you get, the inputs that are, are around you do a, a, have a huge role in shaping your thinking. You see this even from the earliest age, don't you? Think about like a little kid, like a little toddler. Uh, we have some little ones in the room or parents of little ones in the room. Imagine a toddler, you know, maybe one and a half, two years old. They're starting to, to toddle around and, and climb around and maybe pull themselves up on, on things. And they fall over because they're just learning to walk. So of course they're, they're falling over and they fall over and they bump their knee or they bump their elbow and they bump their head. And instead of immediately crying out, what do they do? They look up and they look around to the faces of the people that God has placed in community around them. Most likely the faces of caregivers, parents, siblings. And when they look up at the faces, 
God has planted all these different um, amazing things in the human brain that help us interpret reality through the faces of those around us, these things called mirror neurons. So if a child who's trying to make sense of this discomfort they feel looks up at the faces of people around them and they see freaking out faces, (laughs) they're going to freak out. If they see panicked faces, they're going to panic. But if they see uh, present, attentive, calm, non-anxious faces, they're going to kind of brush themselves off and go, oh, I guess it's not the end of the world that I bump my head or scrape my knee, right? A child waits to cry out until they can see the faces of those around them and then they interpret what's happening on the insides through the messages that they see on the outside. It's the same with us in the Christian life. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with students. It's going to happen in a couple weeks when students move back to UNCW. It happened earlier this week in a phone call that I was having with a student of mine. I can't tell you how often it happens that we uh, reach out to others and look out to try and make sense of what's happening on our insides. When you fall down, when you scrape your knee, when you bump your head, when you stub your toe morally, spiritually, ethically, when you sin, and when you feel distress, and when you feel condemnation, when you feel distance from God, when you feel a break in communion with Him, and you look up to the face of God, what does His face look like when it's looking back at you? When you're trying to make sense of what's going on inside of your own heart when you sin, when you fail, when you fall short, when you doubt, when you struggle, and you look up to the face of God, what does his face looking back at you look like? That's what John wants to tell us this morning. So I want to address this issue from, uh, from two angles. One, I want to look at uh, Jesus and sin, and then I want to look at Jesus and sinners. So remember, we're answering the question, when we sin, when we fail, when we stumble, what does God's face look like when he's looking at us? Okay, so first, Jesus and sin. What does John say about Jesus and sin? Jesus is the the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know what the face of God looks like, Scripture says you look to Jesus. He's the clearest picture, the clearest representation of the character of God. The Word of God made flesh. So we could see Him, we could touch Him, we could converse with Him, we could hear uh, and see the character of God literally enfleshed. So Jesus and sin. Who is Jesus in relation to the darkness, the violence, the depravity, the injustice, and the selfishness that permeates this fallen world and also lives inside of our hearts? How does Jesus feel about sin and darkness? Look at what it says in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. God is light. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is light. And in him is absolutely no darkness at all. No shadow of turning. No shade. No variation. No change. God is perfectly holy 24-7, 365 from eternity past to eternity present. He is perfectly and unbelievably righteous and holy. 
Have you ever imagined what it would be like for Jesus, perfectly holy, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, (laughs) to walk in this broken world? Can you imagine how, um, how jarring the injustice, the cruelty, the violence, just the, the petty meanness would be to Jesus. I mean, we're so desensitized to it, are we not? I mean, we live in it, we swim in it all the time. But for Jesus, it would have been incredibly jarring. Uh, some of you probably, I hope, have visited the beach this summer. If you haven't, I'll pray for you. It's been like two weeks since I've actually jumped in the ocean, so you can pray for me. Um, but the first time you jump in the ocean, the thing that you noticed almost immediately is the saltiness of the water. Like over the winter when, the, when it's too cold to get in the ocean, um, and then finally, you know, it'll be like April or March or something on a warm day, and we'll take our kids down to the beach, and we're just like, go, have at it. And our kids will run into the ocean, and immediately they'll, they'll run back and they'll be like, it is so salty today. Dad, what's going on? Why is the water so salty? And the thing is, is it's not like the water is more salty in April than it is in August. But in April, what happens is you're not acclimated to it yet. You haven't been in salt water for a long time. And so the first time it hits your eyes, it stings. It's so jarring. But by August, you've been swimming in it all the time. And so you, you don't even notice it. For Jesus to be in this world, can you imagine for him walking into a conversation where someone was saying a demeaning thing about another person? You know, know, objectifying another person or making a callous remark at another person's expense or gossiping. It was like that first hit of salt water in April. It must have stung him so much. So for Jesus... To walk in this world, he was incredibly sensitive to sin, he, in, sensitive to things that, that we could have never uh, imagined, that we would totally rationalize. But he doesn't. He notices things that we're numb to. And if we have this picture of Jesus in our mind, it, 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 it's profoundly helpful for us. John is reminding us of this, of the moral perfection of Jesus for two reasons. One, first, he reminds us that if if we're on team Jesus, we can't also be on team sin. If we say we have friendship or fellowship, community, koinonia with Jesus, but we also have fellowship with darkness, he says we're lying. You can't both walk with Jesus and also walk in darkness, meaning make habitual peace with walking in darkness. John Owen used to say this, I love to quote this to my students, that let no person think they make any progress in holiness who does not walk over the belly of their lusts. (laughs) Meaning, like, if you want to make progress with Jesus, progress in holiness, the lusts of your life should be being... uh, like laid down, like in, a, uh, like in a samurai movie, you know where a samurai walks in, there's all these ninjas, and then he does all this stuff, and there's all these dead bodies on the ground? That's the picture. <laughs> That's the Christian's heart after walking with Jesus. 
the lusts are just like lying on the ground and you have to walk over them to get out of the door. So you can't have friendship with Jesus and also friendship with sin. But then here's the other error, error that this protects us from is the idea that any of us would say, yeah, yeah, I love Jesus and also sin's not an issue for me. Yeah, I love Jesus. I, I love his moral perfection. And guess what? He loves me for my moral perfection. What does John say to that? He says, if, if we say we have no sin, verse 8, if we, and John's even including himself and the apostles in this, if we say we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves and actually showing we don't really know God. We make God a liar if we say sin's not an issue for us. I wonder for you, which, which error are you more likely to fall into? You know, treating Jesus as just like this casual buddy who's like, sin all you want, it's fine. I love you anyway, it's no big deal. Sin's not a big deal. Or treating Jesus as, you know, like the person who gives you the merit badge for being better than other people <laughs> and stands by your side as you look down your nose at others. Which do you fall into? For me, I think if I'm honest, <laughs> some days I'm like this, some days I'm like this, depending on what kind of progress I've had on whatever besetting sin I'm aware of at that point. So knowing the holiness of God being aware of this radical holiness of God, one, reminds us that we must also be holy and also that we are constantly falling short. The bigger a picture you, and clearer picture you have of Jesus, the clearer picture you have of your own sin and neediness. So this creates a problem for us, does it not? If John is saying that we are called, that all those who've been called to faith in Jesus have been called into fellowship with God, fellowship with one another, fellowship with, with a holy triune God who is perfect. And that's our calling. And light cannot have fellowship with darkness, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. What are we supposed to do? If God is light and we are darkness, what hope is there for fellowship? We can't just ignore the problem. We can't just close our eyes and, and pretend that, it, that, that, that disconnect is not there. We need God to actually do something for us, to bring us into fellowship with him. And John tells us exactly what he does. Jesus is utterly opposed to sin, but Jesus is utterly for and on the side of sinners. Look at what John says about Jesus and his relationship to sinners. Go, think back to that, that, that picture in the beginning of the child who falls down. Let's say hypothetically you've fallen into sin. You've done that thing that you said you wouldn't do again. You've thought that thing that you've tried to stop thinking for so long. You've felt that pull, that desire that you thought you'd put to death so long ago. And you're not as mature, you're not as stable, you're not as able to withstand temptation as you thought you were. And you look up to the face of God. What does his face look like when he's looking back at you? 
Now, however you would describe this, this is what John says the face of God looks like in that moment. It is the face of someone who is for you. It is the face of an advocate. That is absolutely incredible news. First, when is Jesus our advocate? This, this, is, this was the thing that absolutely blew my mind. And I had read through this passage, you know, countless times, you know, listened to it when we were reading uh, confession together, but this is the thing that, that totally stood out to me. If you had asked me to recite this passage to you, I would have said something like this. Yeah, uh, this is the, the, the Sam Kennedy version, SKV. Um, you know, don't sin. Sin's really bad. God's really holy. Uh, if you say you haven't sinned, you're totally fooling yourself. I'm writing you this so you don't sin. But here's the thing. I've got good news for you. If you repent, God will welcome you with open arms. If you put faith in Jesus, God will embrace you to himself and transform your heart. That is true. But that's not what John says. Listen to what John says. This is, this is mind-blowing to me. When is Jesus our advocate? Not when we repent, but when we sin. In other words, <laughs> even before and prior to your repenting, is Jesus advocating for you? Before you even have enough sense to feel bad about what you've done, God is showering you with love, showering you with fatherly affection, pursuing your heart to draw your dead, unrepentant heart to himself, to squeeze it back to life so that it actually can repent. What's behind your repenting, what's behind your faith is Jesus, your advocate, praying for you, interceding for you, calling out to the Father on your behalf. Before you've done anything for God, God is for you. That's what John is saying. No, it, it says right here in verse 1, if we sin, children, children of God, those who belong to God, if you sin, this is what you know, in that moment when you're sinning, this is who God is to you. He is your advocate. He is advocating for you, not for your sin, but for you as his beloved child. If he wasn't advocating for you, how would you have enough sense to repent? How would you even feel sorry Jesus is advocating for you in that moment. One of the best things that I can do when I sit down with students is to remind them this, this unbelievable truth that in that moment when we feel farthest from God, God is actually nearest to us. That in that moment where you're most aware of your sin, that is evidence that God is at work in your heart. If you feel any kind of remorse, any kind of regret about things you've done, things you've said, ways that you cease to measure up, rejoice 
At that moment, God is at work in your heart. He has made you sensitive. He has made you sensible. He has made you aware. That is the, the mark of the convicting work of the Spirit sent by the Father and the Son. Jesus is right in that moment advocating for you, advocating for you into repentance. Who is this advocate, Jesus? John describes him as our advocate with the Father. Now, we could, we could um, think about it as, you know, God is the judge, kind of like in um, To Kill a Mockingbird, if you've uh, seen the movie or read the book. Recently, in, uh, um, I was in London with some students on a mission trip. We were working with some church planners from Surge um, who were around London and the different boroughs. We were learning how to do evangelism. It was wonderful. I'll tell you about it at the table afterwards. But one of the things we did is we went to go see a play in the West End of London. And I got to see To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, adapted by Aaron Sorkin. So if you like the West Wing and you like To Kill a Mockingbird, it's like the perfect mix, except the worst southern accents I have ever heard in my entire life. So that was hilarious, but the play was great. And there's this moment in the play that I I had never really noticed in the book or in the movie before, where the judge of this small little country Georgia town, under the cover of darkness, goes to Atticus Finch, you know, the defense attorney's house, and begs him to take up the case of this man, Tom Robinson, who's been unjustly accused. And the judge says, you're the only one who can advocate for him. You're the only one who can speak up on his behalf. You know, the jury's totally biased, totally prejudiced. They're not going to listen to anyone, but they'll listen to you. You're the advocate that this man needs. We can think maybe that, that, you know, that Jesus is somehow advocating, persuading the Father, you know, begging the Father uh, not to condemn us to hell. But actually, that, that preposition with is really interesting. It's not just that Jesus is advocating, arguing with the Father, but Jesus, who eternally exists with the Father, is being sent from the Father on the Father's behalf to, to, with the Father's message of advocacy, of reconciliation. So Jesus is actually speaking on behalf of the Father, saying, God is for you. God is, has made a way for all kinds of guilty sinners to be reconciled to him. If only you would put simple faith in his Messiah, in the one mediator who can stand between God and man, who can restore fellowship, That's the mediator that you have, the one who existed from from all time, the very bosom of the Father, sent out to live a morally perfect life, to die a perfect sacrificial death, to stand in on your behalf, and who freely offers his record of righteousness to cover your record of unrighteousness and begs you to be reconciled to the Father. Who is this message for? I mean, it's a beautiful thought, right, that God is for you, that God is advocating for sinners, even at that moment when we're against God, that God is actually for us, when we're rebelling against God, that God is actually reconciling us to himself. That's incredible news, but who is that for? I think 
for my students especially, um, this is really good news, and I hope this is for you too. It, there's a, this common myth today that if you really want to know what's true, if you really want to get a, a hold on reality, what you need to do is you need to look inside yourself. If you really want to know, you know, the truth about who you are and uh, um, how you're supposed to live and what's right and what's wrong, here's what you have to do. Listen to your heart. Follow your heart. Look inward. And as we all know, like the space inside of us is infinite. <laughs> I mean, you can get lost for weeks at a time just kind of staring into your own hearts. And if I'm honest, I don't like what I see when I look into my own heart. It's confusing, and actually what I see, more often than not, is condemning. But this message is freeing for those who have resorted to looking inside their own hearts and have come to the end of themselves. Because John says this later in, in, later in this book. In chapter 3, he says, this is how we know we belong to the truth, and this will reassure our hearts before God whenever our hearts condemn us. God is greater than our hearts, and He knows all things. In other words, if you, like me and so many other people today, have been looking inside yourself to try to get a hold on reality, John's got great news for you. There's a better place to look, to look up, to look out to the face of the Father as He's advocating for you, saying, stop looking inside yourself. Look outside. Look at my face. I am for you. I love you. No matter what your lying heart says to you, I do not condemn you. It's good news for people with self-condemning hearts. It's good news for God's children for those who have put their faith in God, those who have put their faith in Jesus, covenant kids who have grown up in the church, so many of which I have in my group in, in RUF. John is writing this to, to covenant people, saying, little children, this is who God is to you. When you sin, don't you know, you have an advocate. God is for you. You're his people after all. He's your father. How could he not be fatherly to you? But I think this is even good news for not yet believers, not yet children of God. Because behind your repenting, behind the faith that God requires to be reconciled to Him, to be restored and to become a child of God, behind that faith is the prior work of God advocating for you drawing you, calling you to himself. If you would say this morning that you don't even know if you belong to God, if you, if you could even put faith in God, I've got good news for you. God is calling you to himself, and he will provide the faith that you lack. He advocates your unfaithful heart into faithfulness. He teaches you how to worship him, how to love him, what he requires, he graciously provides. God is so generous. He is so good to needy people. Finally, what does this do? 
when we get this picture of God, this, this pro-sinner God, <laughs> deep in our hearts, how does it affect the way we relate to other people around us, even those who have not yet put faith in this generous, forgiving God? Well, I'm, I'm reminded um, of, uh, of this um, story I was at a, a Young Life camp uh, called Windy Gap. Some of you have been there. I'm like seeing, you know, recognition here. Uh, I was at this Young Life camp, and uh, on the first night of camp, I hope I'm not ruining this for anyone who hasn't been to Young Life camp yet, uh, all the cabins of uh, students will go through this obstacle course. And the obstacle course is super messy, you know, and they kind of dress up and paint up with camo, and the cabins will get led through this obstacle course, and... Um, and it's just really, really fun. And I was working at this camp called Windy Gap one time, and um, on one of the sessions, one of the cabins on the obstacle course night ha had gone through this patch of bushes and there was a skunk. And the skunk had just absolutely unloaded on this entire cabin of like 12 girls. And, you know, the minute it happened, you could have been in the next county over and you would be like, someone got sprayed by a skunk tonight. It was horrible. And as I got closer to, to the place where all the, you know, the campers were emptying out to file back to their cabins, it became, you know, I was weeping. Like it was stinging the nostrils as I was getting close. And I saw this, this group of girls who were just so discouraged. I mean, they're like, it, it was all over them. And their sweet counselor was, was with them and, and just like totally sprayed too. And uh, one of the, the staff people who was working at the camp was just holding their nose, standing like 50 feet away, spraying this hose, just spraying them all down. And I walked by and I thought, oh, I'm so glad that's not me. <laughs> but I was thinking recently how frequent it is for me and, and, and for some of us to walk past a broken world that's covered in darkness, covered in sin, covered in pain, covered in shame, covered in ignorance, and just go, oh, I'm so glad that's not me. And to just want to keep as much distance as possible because you don't want to get any of the stink on you. Is that the heart of our God? Is, is our God even that, you know, that, that, um, that person from the camp that's just standing there with the hose, like as far away as possible, just spraying from a distance? <laughs> no. Our God sent his son Jesus to rush with all of his cleansing power like water from that faucet, from that fire hose, to make as much contact with needy, sinful, broken people as possible. And that contact didn't defile Jesus. That contact made sinners clean. That's incredible. What we need to do, if, if we can get this picture of this loving, redeeming, merciful, rushing towards sinners, God, and it, you know, firmly planted in our minds and in our hearts, it'll help us 
when we don't even want to look at ourselves and we want to stand back and spray ourselves from 20 feet away, but also when we're confronted with people in our workplace, people in our families, in our neighborhoods, who we just think, man, they do not get it. They're what's wrong with the world. God is saying, advocate for them. I'm for them. Would you be for them? Would you show them what my heart is like? That no one is so far, no one is so broken, no one is so screwed up that they cannot be redeemed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for my friends here. Thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the reminder that you are an advocate for us and that uh, you love needy sinners into life, into repentance, into faith. Lord, for anyone here who, who does not yet know you as their advocate, as their loving father, Lord, would you show them Jesus? Lord, would you communicate the beauty and the sufficiency of, of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Lord, would you give them the gift of faith that grabs hold of the righteousness of Jesus? Lord, would you unite them to you by faith? Would you hold on to them and keep them in your kingdom of grace? We beg of it in your name. Amen.